I think I've enjoyed this study uh, that we've been doing as much as any study that we've done in, in recent history. And I uh, hope it becomes a library that you can look back on and go back and listen to if you're struggling with any of the, the faults, the doctrines, the, stu- the teachings of the Christian church that are outlined in the Apostles' Creed. We're now 21 weeks in, and there's a lot of material out there for you to go to. If you want to go listen to something about God the Father or Jesus or the resurrection or the cross or Pontius Pilate or the Holy Spirit, you'll have this library to go back and build on. Uh, let me move as quickly as I can this morning to, to what I want to say about the Holy Spirit today and uh, uh, move then to the next section or the next thoughts uh, in the creed. Probably the one you're, you know, most of you have a, a very non-Catholic background. In other words, most of you are, are Protestant. Most of you, I would say about 40, 50% of the room were raised Baptists. The rest of you are a mix of Pentecostal Church of Christ, Assembly of God, Methodist, Wesleyan, Lutheran, Presbyterian, you know, and we come together here around our, our common Christian faiths. Uh, we have a few that were raised Catholic in the room, and by and large, uh, the, the Apostles' Creed is the most common creed of Christianity. It is said in churches of every denomination. But those Baptists struggle with that one sentence, I believe in the Catholic Church. And I've heard more feedback about that single sentence and I hadn't even preached the sermon yet. It's coming next week. So I'm just giving you the foretaste. Okay, next week, we'll deal with that, okay? But this morning, let's finish our thoughts on the Holy Spirit. Let me begin with some personal observations. I remember as a teenager, young teenager, going to talk to my dad uh, about my conversion uh, and, and asking him some questions about my own salvation. I was struggling uh, as a teenager with some doubts, and those doubts were tied to not unbelief, but we're tied to can't remember. You see, I received Christ as such a young child. That's uh, five or six, five years old, I think, six years old, when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And I was of such a young age when I did that. And I was baptized at that same age. It was such a young age when I did that that I only had vague memories and shadowy glimpses of what I did as a little bitty guy. By the time I was a teenager, I couldn't remember but little snippet, little flashes of what had happened in my own life with my, with my faith. And I discovered then that as a teenager, my parents could remember more about my salvation experience and they could articulate it more clearly than I could. And so I could talk to them about it, and when they recounted, and they could recount in great detail what my emotions were, what the service was, you know, how I was, what I said, where I was spiritually, where I was emotionally, and they could recount all of that to me. But in the end, that brought me only a small amount of assurance. And the reason is because there is something incredibly personal about believing on Jesus Christ. Any second-hand information is just that, second-hand. There's something incredibly personal about believing on Jesus as your Savior. Intimate, individual. And what I needed in that moment was a spiritual experience that only a personal encounter with God could satisfy in my life. I needed... 
as a young adult, as a teenager, personal closure, personal assurance, a personal knowledge of my own faith and what I had done. And as I articulate my own experience, and I have now pastored, you know, more than 25 years, and dealt with thousands and thousands of people on the matter of personal salvation, I assure you that is what many in this room need today. Because as I'm talking about my journey, you're like, that's me, Pastor. I I was saved, I think, as a young child, but I can't remember this, I can't remember that, I don't know what it means, and I've always got this unsettled feeling in my heart. Uh, Let me just say to you, that's no way to live. There's no need to live in that struggle of doubt and not knowing when you can know. All we're really fighting is, well, I'm just afraid of what somebody might think about me or what somebody might... Listen, let all that go. Just let all that go. You're among friends this morning. We want you to have personal peace and personal assurance above everything. And what you need this morning is a faith, personal faith, that has been renewed by an experience that will... Crush your doubts with finality this morning. Now, I say that with this experience. Having pastored as long as I have, I've never met a Christian who has not had some doubts. I've never met one. And I've met a lot of them. And as I talk through people about their personal testimony, they say, yeah, there was this time in my life when I was struggling with this. Listen, I've never met a Christian who didn't have some times of disinterest where things get a little cold and you back away a little bit from your faith and you just feel kind of, I don't know, thick and stony-hearted and cold towards God. And you say, well, am I lost? Am I broken? No, no, you just need some personal revival. That's all. It it happens to Christians. It happened to Moses. It happened to Elijah. And I go through the whole list. It happened to David. It happens, okay? And there are seasons of discouragement and seasons of of disappointment. You just have to work through those moments. And the best way to work through them is to have a service like we're having today where you can say, I'm going to look back to this Sunday in November where I rededicated my life to Christ and I did something and I made a decision that put me on a new trajectory for the rest of my adult life. And I pray that our time here together this morning will be that moment where the Word of God and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and He can dispel those doubts forever in your heart. I believe that it is possible to have a closure and be able to move into the promise of a bright future with assurance and confidence in the Holy Spirit and uh, just be able to put that chapter of your life to, to rest and move into a new chapter of victory. So I want you to be thinking about, as we start this morning, today is a day of renewal for me. Uh, listen, honey, we want you to be renewed too, but you're a little young, and, uh, but we're, we're praying anyway. Today is your... Uh, I wish everyone would just say to Holy Spirit right now, Holy Spirit, let this be my day of renewal. I mean, who doesn't need a renewal? You know? Uh, Who doesn't need a fresh start? Jesus is (laughs) the Savior of the fresh start. And how many have you had already? (laughs) We'll have another one. You know, they're like mulligans. Just take one, you know? 
He's the God of forgiveness and the God of a second chance. Take your second, take your renewal today. And, and, and what I want to say to you is, if you need to receive Christ, we'll do that in the service, okay? And we'll put that to bed. Or if you're struggling with doubts, we'll get reassurance. If you need to be baptized, we're going to baptize eight or nine people this morning. Wonderful, wonderful people. Maybe you came into church today and you didn't plan to get baptized today, but maybe you need to be baptized. I want you to be thinking about that in the next 30 minutes. Because at the end of this service, we'll give you an opportunity to also join them and be baptized. But I want to say for all of the, the Cornerstone family, at the end of this service, I want you to just make these steps your altar with God. And I want you to be planning right now, Holy Spirit, let's drive a stake in the ground right here and let's be a different person starting today. Okay, uh, maybe, maybe you were like me. I, I got to think there's a few people that probably had my experience. Maybe you're like me and you, you have no clear memories of what your baptism meant. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it happened, but I don't know what it meant now as an adult. It's all vague to me. Uh, maybe you're like most Christians in America. You're, you've, you've put your faith in Jesus, but you've never, ever been serious about being a follower of Christ. I mean, you've never really been serious about getting discipled so that you can learn how to make disciples, so that you can bear spiritual fruit with your life and lead other people to Christ and be their spiritual mentor, which is exactly what the New Testament teaches every Christian should be doing. Most Christians are not doing that because they've never been serious about being a follower of Christ. Maybe you need clarity about renewal. You know, maybe even your own salvation. You're just like, people tell me I got saved, but I don't know that I got saved. How can you live that way? And I mean that as a, somebody who's been down that path. How can you continue to live with not having assurance that your sins are covered and you've got a relationship with God and that Holy Spirit of God is abiding and living in you? See, your baptism should mean to you, when you go into those baptismal waters, you're saying to the world, I have received Christ as my Savior, and I'm buried with Him. My old life is gone. And now I am raised to live a new life in Jesus Christ. It means I'm serious, and I'm going to be a different person as we go forward, because I've been born again and sealed with the Holy Spirit of the living God. I intend to make disciples. I intend to live a different life. That's what baptism's about. If yours wasn't about that, then maybe baptism would be this experience where you begin the transformation. So prepare your heart for that. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little more about the Holy Spirit, and I want to explain the indwelling of the Spirit in our lives. Pastor Jeremy did a great job in the previous two weeks where uh, he talked to us about how the Holy Spirit, uh, the Bible tells us, the Holy Spirit supernaturally indwells us and He gives followers of Christ supernatural ability to do whatever God needs us to do. Whatever God asks you to do, He's going to give you supernatural ability to do it. If He's going to ask you to speak to someone, then He's going to help you with the words, okay? If He's going to ask you to help someone, He's going to give you the energy and the strength to help someone. If He's going to ask you to, to, to give and he did, by the way, then he's going to supernaturally fill your bucket so you have something to give. I had a conversation with one of our members this week, and he said, you know, my relationship got cold with God, I was giving good, my relationship got cold with God, and I noticed my business began to kind of dry up. My income began to dry up a little bit. 
kind of went backwards a little bit. And, you know, I've had a little season of personal revival, and I've doubled down on giving, and I've been giving. And, Pastor, I just can't explain it, but the more that I give, I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life. You know what? That's most people's testimony in this room. Your financial advisor spreadsheet will not be able to calculate this because this is something that's supernatural that God is doing in your life. And spiritual gifts are nothing more than God's Holy Spirit in you, supernaturally giving you ability to do whatever God needs you to do, to share the gospel, to build up the church, and advance the kingdom of God. If, if he calls you to make disciples, he's going to supernaturally empower you to make those disciples. And that's what the gifts of the Spirit are all about. Then Pastor Jeremy told us that the Holy Spirit would produce God's fruit in our lives. This is called the fruit of the Spirit in the Bible. And God's fruit being produced in our life happens as the indwelling Holy Spirit brings God's personality into my life. I now have God's personality living in me because I have God's person in the Spirit living in me. And He brings God's personality to bear in my life, which means in my own human personality, the attributes of God are showing up more and more and more as I get in line and walk and yield to the Spirit. In other words, if, if we have the fruit of the Spirit, it means God's personality is manifest in our lives as a family of God, as a church, and people here in this room become more loving than they've ever been. They become more filled with peace than they have ever known. They become more kind and gracious and long-suffering and good and gentle and patient with one another than they have ever been. Because God is manifesting His fruit, His personality traits, His character traits into our life and thereby transforming us so that day by day as we walk in fellowship with the Spirit, we are more like Jesus Christ as the Spirit of God is flowing through our lives and we're displaying God's attributes to the world. So now that's what Pastor Jeremy taught in just a few sentences. I need to take it just a little step further. And by taking it a step further, uh, let, let me talk about the Holy Spirit as our guarantee of the future. Now, I like guarantees. I like to buy stuff that I know is guaranteed. I like to be able to take it back if it doesn't work and get a full refund without a hassle. First of all, I like it to do what it's promised to do. I like stuff that lives up to its billing. Well, the Holy Spirit, as described in the New Testament, especially by the Apostle Paul, Holy Spirit is our guarantee of the future. Now, let me challenge your, your thinking just a little bit. I want you to think about the Apostles in the New Testament. The Apostles' Bible was the Jewish Old Testament. They knew nothing of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the way to Revelation. They knew nothing about that. That would come later. The Bible of the Apostles, when they said the Scriptures say, or the prophets say, or the writings say, the Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, uh, we call the Old Testament, it's not what they called it at the time, the Jewish Old Testament was their Bible. And from their Bible, the Jewish Old Testament, the apostles of Jesus understood that the prophets were saying that there were two events that would signal the end of the present age. Now what they understood from their Bible was the prophets were saying things will not always be this way. Things are going to change. As a matter of fact, Jesus brought in so much change and the Spirit brought in so much change, it's mind-blowing. And even now, we've not seen the full extent of that resurrected earth and a resurrected humanity. But God is a God of change and you're going to see some change before this is all done. 
And the apostles were reading their Bible, and the prophets were saying there are two events that will signal a massive change and the end of the present age. And those two events that the prophets talked about were the resurrection of the dead and the subsequent gift of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of the dead and the outpouring of the Spirit were the two events that multiple sets of prophets in the Old Testament It's not one, it's Ezekiel, it's Amos, it's Moses, it's Isaiah. They're talking about the Holy Spirit's coming, resurrection is coming, and it marks a change in the ages. Now, as you stand in the middle of the New Testament with the apostles, if you stand with them in the New Testament, the apostles have now witnessed both of those events. They've witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, and they have now lived to witness the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, Acts chapter number 2. And for the apostles, those two events signaled the end of the old age that had now passed away and the beginning of the new age that was already here, but not fully yet. Now this is the tricky part about the time in which you live. The The age has changed with Christ and the Holy Spirit. Things are never the same now going forward. But they're not fully realized completely yet. Uh, Christ's resurrection, uh, let me say it another way. What we say around here a lot is, you live in the already but not yet. You're already born again, but you haven't seen the whole way that plays out yet. You've already been born again, you've already been saved, but you haven't got your resurrection body like Christ's body yet. You've already... No, that resurrection has happened. But you haven't seen the resurrected earth restored as it once was. And so Christ's resurrection makes my resurrection and your resurrection inevitable. His resurrection guarantees, we're back to this word again, your resurrection. Let me say it another way. Our resurrection is a foregone conclusion because of Jesus Christ. You don't have to wonder When we do a funeral, will I see my loved one again? Guaranteed is the Bible word. (laughs) Absolutely certain you will see your loved one again. Holy Spirit dwelling in us is God's presence and power dwelling in us. And it is the beginning of the future dwelling in us. The gift of the outpoured Spirit is both evidence of the reality that's going to happen, and the guarantee of future glory with Jesus Christ. Now that leads me to what I really want to say is the three metaphors now. There are three metaphors that Paul uses to describe Holy Spirit in a way that we can really understand what we're talking about. Let me give you the three metaphors. Down payment, first fruits, and seal. Now this is Pauline language that helps you understand who Holy Spirit is to you, and what His role is with you. Down payment, first fruits, and seal. Let me talk about those very quickly. Holy Spirit is down payment of all that God has promised you. God poured out His Spirit, and when He did, it's God making down payment on everything He's promised. This down payment language is used Three times in the New Testament, and I'm going to show you all three verses. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 1.22. We'll put it up on the screen. This is NIV. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ, 
He anointed us. He set a seal of ownership on us. He put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit. Everybody understands this language, right? As a guarantee of what is to come. Now, the Greek word erebon, this is a technical banking term. It's found not only in the Bible, but in all kinds of ancient Greek texts they found. And it's a commercial term, commercial banking term. And erebon means the purchase money that is given in advance as security for the rest of the payment. Now, that's very clear to us because you guys understand down payment. And you understand what it will you buy, earnest money, when you're going to purchase a house and you're going to show your seriousness to follow through with the, the rest of the contract. Let me show you this verse from the NLT. And he has identified us as his own by placing his Holy Spirit in our hearts, watch this, as the first installment that guarantees everything he's promised. Well, that language is crystal clear. Do you have Holy Spirit in your heart? That's the first installment that guarantees everything that God has promised in the Word of God. You'll never have to wonder if God's going to keep His Word. Well, I have Holy Spirit. I've got the down payment. Surely God's going to follow. I've got, I've got the presence of God in me. Let me show it to you in, in the Christian Standard uh, Bible. CSB. He also has put His seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. So all these Bible translators in these different versions are explaining... Exactly what this Greek word means. Down payment, earnest money is the old, old KJV. Give us the earnest of our inheritance. Uh, the, the first payment that guarantees the rest. Now, it's used in two other texts. Let me show you. Second Corinthians 5.5 5. Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God. God who gave us the Spirit as, here's the words again, Arabon, down payment. It's found again in Ephesians 1.14. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. You know what an inheritance is, surely. We all wish we had a rich uncle who's a gajillionaire who would die, right? And, well, not die, but who in his time would, would graduate to heaven and leave us with his gajillions, right? In this case, you have a God who owns everything, who has given you an inheritance. And he's promised that inheritance by not a will, instead giving you the Holy Spirit as the guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of His glory. Until you actually see your own resurrection body, the way you know you've got one coming is because the Holy Spirit is inside of you telling you that you are God's child. Holy Spirit indwelling each believer serves as God's down payment, the first installment on all that is to come, on all that He has promised you. For example, Holy Spirit is God's guarantee of resurrection. Holy Spirit is God's guarantee of ruling and reigning with Christ. Holy Spirit is God's guarantee of everything you read in the Bible about your future. You ever sit down and maybe have some story, I just don't know how that's going to work out. You don't have to know. All you have to know is I have Holy Spirit and because I have God in me, there is the promise. There is the guarantee. Let me give you the second metaphor now. Holy Spirit is the first fruits of what God has promised. This word comes out of Romans chapter number 8. Let me read it in the NIV first. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. 
we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What Paul's saying is, this body hurts, this body gets sick, this body breaks down. Uh, this life is not always easy. You will suffer persecution. You will have some hardship in this life. And even though we have the Holy Spirit, uh, we, th- that keeps us focusing on the future. And even though we have hardship, we're looking to the Spirit for comfort about what's coming. And what's coming is the new body, the new creation, heaven and earth reuniting, the kingdom of God coming fully in force. We're going back to Eden, if you would. We're going back to the way God wanted it to be. And the promise that it's going to happen is Holy Spirit. Now, the word first fruit is not a word you all use. Nobody said that word this week. None of you. And none of you will use it next week. It's not a word you use in common English language in America. First fruits is an agrarian word. It's a word that's used in an agrarian culture. If you don't know what that means, it means a culture based on farming. Okay? A culture based on farming. Old school culture like Israel had. In an agrarian culture, the word first fruits is very common and it describes the first sheaf of grain or the first taste of the harvest. The harvest will come later, but look, we planted and here come some of the first fruits coming in, the first grains to be, the first part is coming, the little first taste of the crop has started to come. And there's even a Jewish feast called the Feast of First Fruits happens in the spring following Passover, and it just so happens, not by coincidence, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Sunday morning was the day of the Feast of Firstfruits. So that you'll hear the New Testament writers often say, and Christ, the firstfruits of them that slept. God laid out that timing so impeccably that He raised Jesus, fulfilling the feast day of firstfruits, and saying, I've raised my own Son to show you, here is the first taste of the resurrection. Here is the beginning of everything that I've promised. And the first fruits is the guarantee that the harvest is coming later. See, the crop's already starting to come in. Therefore, we know the big harvest is going to come here a little later in the fall. Then God went even further. Uh, the Son of God, Jesus, was not only uh, the first fruits in terms of the resurrection, but then God gave us the Holy Spirit to come and dwell every believer. And He is the first taste of future glory for us. He's the first taste of all that's coming in the future for us. We are connected to God in a way that the old people in the ancient times were never connected to God in this way. And you say, well, what does it mean? It means the future is coming. Uh, There's a harvest coming. And you have the first taste right now called the Holy Spirit. Watch how clear the New Living Translation presents this language. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, as a foretaste of future glory, first fruits. He's the first taste of what it feels like to be forever in a relationship with God, forever connected to God, forever hearing God's voice speak into your brain, forever hearing God's voice speak into your heart, Listen, even if you are alone, you're never alone. God is with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age, he told his followers. Why? Because he's given you the Spirit and he is the foretaste, the first fruits of future glory. 
The Spirit in us is the key to our present existence, both as evidence and guarantee that the future is already happening right now. The reason I can talk about the future with such confidence, it's already broken into my present. I'm not waiting to know God at some point. I know God right now. I'm not waiting to meet Jesus and hug His neck and shake His hand. I already have His Spirit living in my heart. I'm not waiting to hear the voice of Jesus. I hear Holy Spirit talking to me daily. That is the voice of God. I have met Him. I do have an experience with Him. Daily, weekly, He's speaking. He's walking. We're together. We're in communion. The third metaphor, quickly, Holy Spirit is God's seal. It's one of my favorites. God's seal upon your life. This is great Pauline language now describing Holy Spirit. Seal, the language of seal related to Holy Spirit recurs three times in the New Testament. I'll read them for you. Let me go back because I read it already and you probably already saw it. 2 Corinthians 1.21 Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and He set His seal of ownership on us. And He put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what was to come. Look at that line. He set His seal of ownership on us. We'll talk about that seal in just a minute. Let me read Ephesians 1.13. Here's the second occurrence. And you also were included in Christ. These, are, by the way, are things written to the Gentiles. And Paul in Romans 8 that I read a few minutes ago is talking to Jews and Gentiles and he's, he's telling people you're all one in Christ. Spirit's the great unifier that binds the body together in Christ. A Jew and Gentile, all alike, rich and poor, male and female, bond and free, doesn't matter. We're all here together because of the Spirit binding us together into one body. Ephesians 1.13 And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Let's talk about how you get saved. Someone shares the gospel with you. Now you hear it on the radio, you hear it on TV, you hear it in church, you hear your mom talking about the gospel, maybe a co-worker shares the gospel with you, but the word gospel is really the story of Jesus. It's the good news about Jesus. And let me just give you the short version of the good news about Jesus. You and I are sinners and can't save ourselves. We are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. It is our very, it's who we are. We're rebels against God. That's who we are. And you know you've got that rebellious streak. It's in you. It's, it's, it comes just with the DNA. You got it. And we are at enmity with God. And because of that, God sent His own Son to this world in human form. He lived a perfect life and He came to be our substitute on the cross. He came to lay down His life for our sins. He died and was buried and rose again to show you that your sins had been paid for and He was your Savior. And you say, well, now what do we do? This is what they asked in Acts 2. Peter said, you have crucified the Messiah. And they said, what shall we do? Peter said, believe on Him. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and be baptized. That's what you need to do. You need to believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, the church has lots of metaphors. And I'm sorry we confuse you so much. Because these words all mean the same thing in a church. Born again, get saved, repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus, trust Jesus as your Savior, call upon the Lord for salvation. 
I know you hear all of this different language and you're like, well, which of those seven things do I need to do today? They're all the same thing. And I'm sorry we confused you with that. But you need to pray and put your faith in Jesus Christ and get assurance of that and follow the Lord and be baptism. Your baptism doesn't save you. But your baptism is a definite uh, telling display to the world that I'm serious about what God has done in my life. And it's your testimony to the world of what's already happened in your heart. Now, when I talk about uh, this uh, sealing Sealing is also not a cultural thing. You probably didn't use that word this week uh, um, unless you were, I don't know, sealing your gutters or sealing your swimming pool or sealing a window with caulk. It's just not that common spiritual language we use. But in the Jewish culture, seal was an everyday word. It It was an everyday word to them. And when they said seal, it's literally a stamped impression usually with a signet ring or, a, or a, like a little a stamp, hand stamp. It's an impression put into wax or put into clay that will dry and it will bear the seal of the person who's imprinting. And when you see the seal, you can read the words that it says and uh, the seal carried authority of ownership. That's what it meant, authority of ownership. And uh, if I said, hey, Alan, run down to the marketplace. Here's my ring or here's my seal. And listen, we need to, you know, bread for communion. He'd go down to the marketplace and he could transact business in my name with my seal. Does that make sense? He could, he could, and he could push it into a wax tablet and pay almost like you do by swiping a card with credit. We could settle up later. But it was the seal of ownership. It was a seal of authority. And, and, and what Paul is saying is the Holy Spirit is God's seal in your life. Now listen how it plays out in the text. He's saying it's the seal of ownership, of God's ownership on you, is Holy Spirit in you. And since our culture doesn't really use this kind of language, I need to translate the metaphor into something else. And the New Living Translation translates it for me, so I'll just read it. It's beautifully written. NLT, Ephesians 1.13. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you, and when you believed in Christ, watch how they translated seal. When you believed in Christ, He identified you as His own. This is why we believe in eternal security, by the way. This is also the underpinnings of your faith. When you believed on Jesus Christ, He sent the Spirit into your heart and it's identified you as God's possession. He identified you by giving you the Holy Spirit whom He promised long ago. Well, that was what the prophet said in the Apostles' Old Bible. That when the Holy Spirit came, this is what He would do. He would come at the end time and He would seal God's people and they would speak with power and they would do great signs and wonders and, and, and share the gospel with the world. That's exactly what the church is supposed to be doing. Let me read that same NLT from Ephesians 4.30 now. And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Now let me just pause right there. You know what that implies? that you guys could be kind of at friction with the Holy Spirit in your personal life. You could be frustrating what God wants to do in your life. You could be at odds with God. I'm not saying you're lost, not saying you're not saved, 
Listen, I love my kids, but they don't always do what I want them to do. And sometimes it causes a little friction. I would say my wife, but we were always in harmony. Uh, If you're in a relation with someone, you don't want to hurt them. You don't want to grieve them. You don't want to cause them angst. And what's implied by this simple language is that we're in such an intimate relationship with God. And because of the Holy Spirit, we can really frustrate our relationship with God by not listening to the Holy Spirit. Now, let me read this again. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, He has identified you as His own. How did He do that? He sealed you. He put His mark on you. What is God's mark on us? The Holy Spirit living in your heart. You see, when the Bible uses this mark of the beast i've explained this a thousand times to you there is no mark of the beast it's symbolic language it's not a covid shot it's not a microchip it's not a tattoo it's not a democratic ballot it's not a republican ballot it's not a brand of click there is no mark it's figurative language pointing to something else okay When God says, I put my seal on you, would anybody like to show me the seal on your forehead that God put on you? Well, listen, he said, I'll mark 144,000 people in the book. It's the same language. It's not literal. What he's saying is it points to something that's literal. It's not like you and I got to all have the same birthmark now because we believed on Christ. Look, I got mine too. See, I'm really saved. It's not like that. I'll tell you what the evidence is of God's ownership on Bobby Harrell's life. He gave me himself. Holy Spirit lives in me. I'll tell you what God's evidence is in your life. He lives in you. What, 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 What do you want? Some cheap, you know, stick on tattoo? Or do you want God's real presence living in your life? This is what he's saying. Now the language is figurative, but it points to the reality God didn't literally stamp you with a seal and you're going to go home and strip down and get in front of the mirror and say, I can't find it, I'm lost, oh no, what am I going to do? It's not like that. The voice of God in you, the conviction of God in you, the Holy Spirit in you, that is the seal. That is the testimony that you are God's own. Remember what Paul said earlier, except a man have the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. When you become His, He puts His Spirit into you, and that is the seal that you belong to God. Sometimes people ask me, can a Christian be demon-possessed? No, this is an easy one. Don't even wrestle with it. The answer is no. And I'll tell you why it's no. Possession denotes ownership. And you're already owned. And you say, how? Holy Spirit lives in me. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. I don't need garlic. I don't need a crucifix. I don't need all of that stuff to keep the boogeyman away. I have Holy Spirit living in me. I have God on board. And I don't need all the gimmicks. Does that make sense? Now, I'll tell you this. Uh, 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 Satan and his forces can definitely influence you to the point that Jesus looks at Peter and says, Now, listen, what you're saying right now is not you, Peter. That's Satan putting that thought in your head. Get, Get behind me, Satan. Now, I believe you can get your head really messed up But you can never be owned by Satan because God already owns you and I think I know who's stronger. 
You remember what Jesus said in the book of John, the Father has given them to me, and He has given, and we are all in the Father's hand, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. You need to rest secure in your faith in Christ and your sealing by the Holy Spirit. So let me say it, uh, summarize this section. Uh, People of God, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and you cannot get unsealed just because you fall off the wagon and commit a sin. Of course you committed a sin after your salvation. Everybody in this room committed a sin after their salvation. But we're not trying to live in sin after our salvation because the Holy Spirit's talking to us and coaching us up and saying, no, don't do that. That grieves God. Live a different way instead. You don't lose your salvation because you sin after you get saved because you're owned by God and He sealed you with the Spirit and you're not going to get unsealed. You're not going to get unsaved. You are God's possession Listen, if nothing else in this invitation, fall on your face and say, praise God, I understand it differently. God, I am your possession and I'm never going to get lost. Listen, I lose my possessions all the time. Susan, where are the keys? Susan, where's my phone? You know, I lose my head if it wasn't attached some days. God doesn't lose his possessions. He knows where they are. He knows you're here sitting in his church this morning. He has his spirit moving in our hearts right now speaking to us. And that brings me to the last thing I want to say this morning, and that's on the filling of the Spirit. I wish, I I feel like I could talk about the Holy Spirit for another month, but I I can't. I don't want to bore you. I want to talk about the filling of the Spirit really quickly. Romans 15, let me read from the NLT. This is talking about Gentiles and Jews being united in the church, and the Spirit's the one that unifies them, okay? May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with one another. Now, we don't have a Jew-Gentile problem. Southern Baptist churches have a black-white problem. Republicans have a Hispanic illegal problem. Amen? I want to, can I tell you a story? Would you all allow me two minutes? I was witnessing to a man this week, and I found out he was a Christian. Uh, and uh, our church partnered with him and his pastor... It's a Hispanic church. And uh, uh, I told them, I'm going to do a discipleship training for you. Bring every Hispanic pastor in, in the Metroplex together and we're going to teach you guys how to make disciples. I said, what needs do you have? They said, we need chairs. We need tables. Our churches are poor. We have some churches in Mexico we're trying to establish. We've got churches in the Metroplex we're trying to establish. I said, Cornerstone wants to partner with you. We want to partner with you. We had about 150 of these chairs in a storage container out back. We haven't used them in years. I gave them away this week. Somebody's sitting in them this morning hearing the gospel. All of our old round tables, there were 30 or 40 of them. They need to be probably upgraded anyway. I just gave them all away. I said, here, y'all use those. I just started giving stuff away. I hope y'all don't mind. And I said, we're not going to store it for the kingdom of God. We're going to use it for the kingdom of God. We're going to put it in people's hands. And here's what I really want to say. As I was talking to this man, he said, well, I'm a deacon at this church. He's a Hispanic guy, super nice guy. And I said, are are you, what's your status? Does everybody understand what I'm saying right now? He said, "Uh, I've been here 16 years. I've raised my kids here. And tears started flowing down his cheeks. And he said, I want you to know I'm so thankful for coming to America. I found Jesus here. 
this is where I got saved. I left my Roman Catholic country and I came here. And this is where I really found Christ. And he was real emotional. And he said, because of my lack of status, I can't leave and come back. Y'all understand the situation I'm saying without me being explicit. And with tears coming down his face, he said, I have unsaved parents and family members on the other side. And I can't go lead them to Christ. I hugged his neck and I said, no problem, write their address down, I'll go get them. I called Mike Starling a few days ago and said, hey Mike, I'm waiting for an address to come, but as soon as it comes, we're going to hop over the border and go lead this family to Christ. We've got a whole new way to do missions. Talk to all of your illegal friends, have them list their family addresses who are lost on the other side. You have a blue passport, I'll take you across the border. Letty, Stephanie, our Spanish speakers, we'll go win them to Christ. A whole new form of missions, you know? Now, all I want to say is this. God has united us all together in Christ. I have strong political views. I think you know that. But I have spiritual religious views that transcend my political views. And I'm asking you to take that up to a higher level in your own life. Be Democrat if you want. Be Republican if you want. Be none of the above if you want. Be psycho if you want. I don't care. But above all, be Christ's. Be God's people above all things. Now, I'm talking about filling the Spirit quickly. May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as it is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together. All kinds of colors of people, all different kinds of political people, all different kinds of background stories can join together in harmony as is fitting. And you, with one voice, you can give praise and glory to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you. Could that not be clearer? You say, what are we going to do with all these illegals who are here? They're here. Love them. Lead them to Christ. Let's help them get legal. Let's call them brother and sister. Isn't it crazy? You'll send me onto the other side of the world at great expense to go win some people who are not Americans to Christ. But when God sends those people through your borders, then you're mad at them and hate them. I don't know. I just feel like I'm on a rant right now. I just... I want them to come legally too, but they haven't and now they're here. You haven't always done everything right either. What are we going to do with you? You see my point? We've just got to start from where we are and figure out how to work our way forward into harmony in Christ. Now, here's Holy Spirit teaching, verse 13. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely. With, and he starts talking about the attributes of God, joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me just say this about the filling of the Spirit. Whatever the filling of the Spirit is, it has to do with unity of all kinds of people coming together to be one new people of God. Whatever the filling of the Spirit is, it has to do with God filling our lives to overflowing joy and peace and confident hope through the Holy Spirit. If you're not living in joy and peace and confident hope, then the Holy Spirit's not overflowing your life. 
That's why we need to have a moment like this of rededication. That's why we need to have a fresh experience. Now, filling may not be the word you would use in modern American culture. We would probably say something a little more like this. Pursuit of the Holy Spirit. Pursuing our relationship with Holy Spirit every day. Desiring that God would fill us continually with His presence. That He would empty out sin and empty out unbelief and empty out secularism and empty out worldliness or whatever it is and fill us with Holy Spirit. I believe, and you've heard me preach this for weeks now, that Pentecostals are right to seek more Spirit. (laughs) And I personally want to be done with the Baptist idea that Holy Spirit is a doctrine in our doctrinal statement. The Holy Spirit is not a doctrine. He is God. He is a person. His name is Holy Spirit. He's the reason you're saved. He's the power behind your salvation. He's the seal of God in your life. He's a living presence, not a doctrine, not words and ink on a paper. He's a living being, living God in you. All right, let me end with Ephesians 5, and this is the classic filling verse. Paul writes to the church of Ephesus, And be not drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Our English words, be filled, comes from the Greek word in this verse, pleruo. Now, it's a little different than your understanding of fill. Pleruo means to fill, but it means to cram. That's Texan. Cram. To cram full. Honey, why have you crammed your mouth full of green beans? Cram full. It also carries the definition to level up. Now in Texas, you say that differently. You say, honey, how much gas is in the car? She said, oh, we, you know, we've got three quarters of a tank. Well, why don't we just pull into Bucky's? We're right here. And let's top it off. You wouldn't say level it up. You'd say fill her up. Or you'd say, let's top it off. That's exactly what the Bible word is saying. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a passive command. Two very important things I want to say right here. Don't lose me. It's a passive command. So when Paul said to the European Christians, be filled with the Spirit, it's not saying that you are to fill yourself with the Spirit. It's passive. Be filled means that you are just to open up the tank and let the Holy Spirit do the filling. You don't do the filling. You get out of the way. You open up the possibility for filling. Because contrary to the Calvinists, you do have a free will. And you exercise it all the time. thousand times a day. And you need to say at an old-fashioned altar, I will be filled with the Spirit. I do want you in my life. I want you in every nook and cranny of my life. I want you to overflow my life. You see... You can only fill, now I'm almost done, you can only fill the empty part. I have a friend named Scotty, who I've run around with for years in the old days. And if I ever went out to eat with my friend Scotty, and we ordered something, Scotty will always order like this. I'll take a Coke, no ice. Correct? Coke, no ice. I don't know what it is with him and ice, but Coke, no ice. Well, here's what I notice about eating with my friend Scotty. He always gets more Coke than I do. Take Susan to Sonic. 
She used to be addicted. We broke that addiction through Sonic Anonymous, finally. (laughs) But she used to be addicted to Sonic, several a day. And if you ever pull up to Sonic with Susan, I can already tell you what the order will be. If you want to get her one, I already tell you what it will be. She'll pull up to the Sonic order window and she'll say, I'll have a Coke Zero with cherry, easy on the ice. Now, here's what I've noticed about living my life with Miss Harold. Long after I have slurped down my Coke, she still has a good supply of Coke. And that's possible because she opened up the possibility of more of what she desires to be in her cup. And she did this by eliminating or restricting what normally is found in the cup. By limiting what normally is in the cup, she's opened up the possibility for more of something else to go into the cup. Now this is like deep theology right here. My point, and I believe Paul's point also, is this. There are things in your life that are crowding out Holy Spirit. If you will give Holy Spirit a greater place in your life, He will give you a greater presence of His life. Think about this for a minute. If you will open up the possibility of a greater place in your life for Him, He will give you a greater feeling, a greater presence of His life. The issue is not about getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of a semantics game. You have all of God. You have the full Holy Spirit in your heart. The filling is about you making more space in your life, in your relationship for Holy Spirit. Another way to say it, I guess, is is you need to be more open, more aware of the Holy Spirit, more open to Spirit taking control, more yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. Let me give you one more twist. Not only is the filling passive, it's in ongoing present tense. You see, my problem, I, I drive a truck, I have a V8 engine, I have to put gas in frequently. It's a constant process in my life of every week of my life, i got to top it off because I deplete, I have to top it off. And I don't know about you, I only know about me, but I can tell you in my long 50-year walk with a relationship with the, with the Creator God, with Jesus Christ, with Holy Spirit, I can tell you that life has a way of draining the life out of me. Drains my emotions. Life can be draining. Drains your energy. Life pulls out of you. You need to be topped up continually. Now, it's just a metaphor, but you understand what I'm saying. The way you have constant joy and peace and love and goodness, the way you stay up, the way you stay on fire, the way you stay on mission is a constant, the, the, the word is in ongoing present tense, be you continually being filled with the Spirit. So what I'm saying is, I want you to have an experience, but the experience is the beginning of the relationship, not the whole relationship. I married Susan a long time ago, but I still have to talk to her. We still have to interact and live our lives and work on our relationship. What we did 25, 30 years ago is no, that don't always work for today. And it's the same in your walk with God. You need to be renewing daily, weekly, or with frequency, a continual topping off, 
uh, seeking the Spirit, open to the Spirit, experiencing Him in a personal way, and being filled is another way of saying a lifestyle of pursuing constantly your relationship with God. Now, let me close with this. In these last 21 weeks through the Apostles' Creed, my prayer is that you have grown. My prayer is that you have asked yourself some hard questions and you have found some answers to your questions and you have wrestled with your beliefs, you have examined your lifestyle and that God's Spirit has been speaking to you in these weeks. My prayer is that you have a new, maybe a deeper understanding than you've ever had about what you believe and why you believe it. Many of you have heard God's Spirit speak for the first time. Many of you have heard God's Spirit speak to you in a very powerful way. And it's bringing conviction into your life. And you know, many of you, that you need to make some serious decisions. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Let's make them right now.